0: Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I've got a lovely, uh, classic bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to the show I just want to thank our brand new patrons on Patreon.com where you can go and uh, donate just $2 a month and get a totally ad-free version of the show. So this week's new patrons Joan Steinberg May Coffee Hannah Olson and Claire Megan Thank you all so, so much for being patrons of the show. It really, really means a lot. And if you're listening, uh, you would like your name read on the show, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donate even a dollar a month. Like I said before, uh, $2 a month gets you a totally ad-free version of Sleepy that still releases every Sunday. And, uh, and then at $5 a month, you get an entirely uh, separate Sleepy podcast where I read poetry, um, extra stuff just for you, just for donating. So, if you want to be a part of making this show, then uh, just go to patreon.com slash radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James levkowski and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Canaan. I have um, kind of a compilation for you, and that is because um, I started reading the wonderful book, um, Anne of Avonlea, which is by L.M. Montgomery, of course. It's the uh, continuation or the sequel to Anne of Green Gables, where we follow Anne um, at 16 years old when she begins teaching in her little town, Um, so yeah, it's, it's the continuation to the classic Anne of Green Gables, which is one of the most listened to episodes of Sleepy, which I completely understand because it is such a lovely story. Um, and I figured it would be a good time to keep that story going. And, uh, because of New York, uh, bless its the recording situation, um, I was, uh, being interrupted a little bit while recording, but that's okay because, uh, I still had a great time reading Anna Avonlea. It was just caught a little bit short during the recording session, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, repost all of the original Anne of Green Gables that we've read on the show before, and then I'm going to add on the uh, first chapter that I read of Anne of Avonlea, so you get an extra long snoozy episode tonight. So, what you're gonna hear tonight, um, hopefully you don't hear any of it, hopefully you're asleep already, honestly, but if you are listening, um, what you're gonna hear is the first part of Anne of Green Gables, and then you're gonna hear the first chapter of Anne of Avonlea. I really hope these readings, um, help you doze off into a deep deep slumber and that you enjoy this classic story by L.M. Montgomery and now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it feel yourself melt into your bed get real comfortable close your eyes and let me read to you Chapter 1. Mrs. Rachel Lynde is Surprised Mrs. Rachel Lynde lived just where the Avonlea main road dipped down into a little hollow, fringed with alders and ladies' eardrops, and traversed by a brook that had its source away back in the woods of the old Cuthbert place. It was reputed to be an intricate, headlong brook in its earlier course through the woods, with dark secrets of pool and cascade. But by the time it reached Lynn's Hollow, it was a quiet, well-conducted little stream, for not even a brook could run past Mrs. Rachel Lynn's door without due regard for decency and decorum. It probably was conscious that Mrs. Rachel was sitting at her window, keeping a sharp eye on everything that passed, from brooks and children up, and that if she noticed anything odd or out of place, she would never rest until she had ferreted out the whys and the wherefores thereof. There are plenty of people, in heavenly and out of it, who can attend closely to their neighbors' business by dint of neglecting their own. But Mrs. Rachel Lynn was one of those capable creatures, who can manage their own concerns and those of other folks into a bargain. She was a notable housewife. Her work was always done, and well done. She ran the sewing circle, helped run the Sunday school, and was the strongest prop of the Church Aid Society and the Foreign Missions Auxiliary. Yet, with all this, Mrs. Rachel found abundant time to sit for hours at her kitchen window, knitting cotton warp quilts. She had knitted sixteen of them, as Avonlea housekeepers were wont to tell in awed voices, and keeping a sharp eye on the main road that crossed the hollow and wound up the steep red hill beyond. Since Avonlea occupied a little triangular peninsula, Jutting into the GO, jutting out into the Gulf of the St. Lawrence, with water on two sides of it. Anybody who went out of it, or into it, had to pass over the hill road and so run the unseen gauntlet of Mrs. Rachel's all seeing eye. She was sitting there, one afternoon, in early June. The sun was coming in at the window, warm and bright. The orchard on the slope below the house was in a bridal flush of pinky white bloom, hummed over by a myriad of bees. Thomas Lynde, a meek little man whom heavenly people called Rachel Lynde's husband, was sowing his late turnip seed on the hill field beyond the barn, and Matthew Cuthbert ought to have been sowing his on the big red brook field away over by Green Gables. Mrs. Rachel knew that he ought because she had heard him tell Peter Morrison the evening before in William J. Blair's store over at Carmody that he meant to sow his turnip seed the next afternoon. Peter had asked him, of course, for Matthew Cuthbert had never been known to volunteer information about anything in his whole life. And yet, here was Matthew Cuthbert. At half past three in the afternoon of a busy day placidly driving over the hollow and up the hill. Moreover he wore a white collar and his best suit of clothes which was plain proof that he was going out of Avonlea. And he had the buggy and the sorrel mare which betokened that he was going a considerable distance. Now where was Matthew Cuthbert going, and why was he going there? Had it been any other man in Avonlea, Mrs. Rachel, deftly putting this and that together, might have given a pretty good guess as to both questions. But Matthew so rarely went from home that it must be something pressing and unusual which was taking him. He was the shyest man alive, and hated to have to go among strangers or to any place where he might have to talk. Matthew, dressed up with a white collar and driving in a buggy, was something that didn't happen often. Mrs. Rachel, ponder as she might, could make nothing of it, and her afternoon's enjoyment was spoiled. I'll just step over to Green Gables after tea, and find out from Marilla where he's gone, and why. The worthy woman finally concluded, he doesn't generally go to town this time of year, and he never visits. If he'd run out of turnip seat, he wouldn't dress up and take the buggy to go for more. He wasn't driving fast enough to be going for a doctor. Yeah, something must have happened since last night to start him off. I'm clean puzzled that's what, and I won't know a minute's peace of mind or conscience until I know what has taken Matthew Cuthbert out of Avonlea today accordingly after tea Mrs. Rachel set out she had not far to go the big rambling orchard and bowered house where the Cuthberts lived was a scant quarter of a mile up the road from Lynn's Hollow to be sure The long lane made it a good deal further. Matthew Cuthbert's father, as shy and silent as his son after him, had got as far away as he possibly could from his fellow men without actually retreating into the woods when he founded his homestead. Green Gables was built at the furthest edge of his cleared land and there it was to this day, barely visible from the main road along which all the other Avonlea houses were so sociably situated Mrs. Rachel Lynn did not call living in such a place living at all it's just staying that's what she said as she stepped along the deep rutted grassy lane bordered with the wild rose bushes it's no wonder Matthew and Marilla are both a little odd living away back here by themselves trees aren't much company. Though, dear knows if they were, there'd be enough of them. I'd rather look at people. To be sure, they seem contented enough. But then, I suppose, they're used to it. A body can get used to anything, even to being hanged, as the Irishman said. But this Mrs. Rachel stepped out of the lane into the backyard of Green Gables. Very green and neat and precise was that yard, set about on one side with great patriarchal windows and on the other with prim Lombardies. Not a stray stick nor stone was to be seen, for Mrs. Rachel would have seen it if there had been. Privately, She was of the opinion that Marilla Cuthbert swept that yard over as often as she swept her house. One could have eaten a meal off the ground without overbrimming the proverbial peck of dirt. Mrs. Rachel rapped smartly at the kitchen door, stepped in when bidden to do so. The kitchen at Green Gables was a cheerful apartment, or would have been cheerful if it had not been so painfully clean as to give it something of an appearance of an unused parlor. Its windows looked east and west. Through the west one, looking out the backyard, came a flood of mellow June sunlight. But the east one, whence you got a glimpse of the bloom-white cherry trees in the left orchard and nodding slender birches down in the hollow by the brook, was greened over, by a tangle of vines. Here sat Marilla Cuthbert, when she sat at all, always slightly distrustful of sunshine, which seemed to her too dancing and irresponsible a thing for a world which was meant to be taken seriously. And here she sat now, knitting, and the table behind her was laid for supper, Mrs. Rachel, before she had fairly closed the door, had taken mental note of everything that was on the table. There were three plates laid, so that Marilla must be expecting someone home with Matthew to tea. But the dishes were everyday dishes, and there was only crab apple preserves and one kind of cake, so that the expected company cannot be any particular company. Yet, what of Matthew's white collar and the sorrel mare? Mrs. Rachel was getting fairly dizzy with this unusual mystery about quiet, unmysterious green gables. Good evening, Rachel, Marilla said briskly. This is a real fine evening, isn't it? Won't you sit down? How are all your folks? Something that for a lack of any other name might be called, friendship existed and always had existed between Marilla Cuthbert and Mrs. Rachel, in spite of, or perhaps because of, their dissimilarity. Marilla was a tall, thin woman, with angles and without curves. Her dark hair showed some grey streaks, "'and was always twisted up in a hard little knob behind "'with two wire hairpins stuck aggressively through it. "'She looked like a woman of narrow experience "'and rigid conscience, which she was. "'But there was a saving something about her mouth, "'which, if it had been ever so slightly developed, "'might have been considered indicative of a sense of humor. "'We're all pretty well,' said Mrs. Rachel." I was kind of afraid you weren't, though. When I saw Matthew starting off today, I thought maybe he was going to the doctors. Marilla's lips twitched understandingly. She had expected Mrs. Rachel up. She had known that the sight of Matthew jaunting off so unaccountably would be too much for her neighbor's curiosity. Oh no, I'm quite well, although... I had a bad headache yesterday, she said. Matthew went to Bright River. We're getting a little boy from an orphan asylum in Nova Scotia, and he's coming on the train tonight. If Marilla had said that Matthew had gone to Bright River to meet a kangaroo from Australia, Mrs. Rachel could not have been more astonished. She was actually stricken dumb for five seconds. It was unsupposable. That Marilla was making fun of her, but Mrs. Rachel was almost forced to suppose it. "'Are you in earnest, Marilla?' she demanded when voice returned to her. "'Yes, of course,' said Marilla, as if getting boys from orphan asylums in Nova Scotia were part of the usual spring work on any well-regulated Avonlea farm, instead of being an unheard-of innovation.' Mrs. Rachel felt that she had received a severe mental jolt. She thought in exclamation points, a boy, Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert, of all people, adopting a boy from an orphan asylum. Well, the world was certainly turning upside down. She would be surprised at nothing after this. Nothing on earth put such a notion into your head she demanded disapprovingly this had been done without her advice being asked and must perforce be disproved well we've been thinking about it for some time all winter in fact Mrs. Alexander Spencer was up here one day before Christmas and she said she was going to get a little girl from the asylum over in Hopetown in the spring her cousin lives there And Mrs. Spencer has visited her and knows all about it. So Matthew and I have talked it over, off and on ever since. We thought we'd get a boy. Matthew is getting up in years, you know. He's 60, and he isn't so spry as he once was. His heart troubles him a good deal. And you know how desperate hard it's got to be to get hired help. There's never anybody to be had but those stupid half-grown little French boys, and as soon as you do get one broke into your ways and taught something, he's up and off to the lobster canneries or the states. At first, Matthew suggested getting a Barnado boy, but I said, no flat to that. They may be all right, I'm not saying they're not, but no London street Arabs for me, I said. Give me a native-born, at least, There'll be a risk, no matter who we get, but I'll feel easier in my mind and sleep sounder at night if we get a born Canadian. So in the end, we decided to ask Mr. Spencer to pick us out one when she went over to get her little girl. We heard last week she was going, so we sent her word by Richard Spencer's folks at Carmody to bring us a smart, likely boy of about ten or eleven. We decided that would be the best age, old enough to be of some use in doing chores right off and young enough to be trained up proper. We mean to give him a good home and schooling. We had a telegram from Mrs. Alexander Spencer today. The mailman brought it from the station, saying they were coming in at 5.30 on the train tonight. So Matthew went to Bright River to meet him. Mrs. Spencer will drop him off there. Of course, she goes on to white sand stations herself. Mrs. Rachel prided herself on always speaking her mind. She proceeded to speak it now, having adjusted her mental attitude to this amazing piece of news. Well, Marilla, I'll just tell you plain that I think you're doing a mighty foolish thing. A risky thing, that's what. You don't know what you're getting. You're bringing a strange child into your house and home, and you don't know a single thing about him, nor what his disposition is like, nor what sort of parents he had, or how he's likely to turn out. Why? It was only last week I read in the paper how a man and his wife up west of the island took a boy out of an orphan asylum and he set fire to the house at night. Set it on purpose. Marilla and nearly burnt them to a crisp in their beds and I know another case where an adopted boy used to suck the eggs and they couldn't break him off of it if you had asked my advice in the matter which you didn't do Marilla I'd have said that for mercy's sake not to think of such a thing that's what this Job's comforting seemed neither to offend nor alarm Marilla She knitted steadily on. I don't deny there's something in what you say, Rachel. I've had some qualms myself. But Matthew was terrible set on it. I could see that. So I gave in. It's so seldom Matthew sets his mind on anything that when he does, I always feel it's my duty to give in. And as for the risk, there's risks and Pretty near everything a body does in this world. There's risks in peoples having children of their own when it comes to that. They don't always turn out well. And then Nova Scotia is right close to the island. It isn't as if we're getting it from England or the States. It can't be much different from ourselves. Well, I hope it will turn out alright said Mrs. Rachel in a tone that plainly indicated her painful doubts. Only, don't say I didn't warn you if he burns green gables down or puts strychnine in the well. I heard of a case over in New Brunswick where an orphan asylum child did that and the whole family died in fearful agonies. Only, it was a girl in that instance. Well, we're not getting a girl, said Marilla as if poisoning wells were a purely feminine accomplishment and not to be dreaded in the case of a boy. I'd never dream of taking a girl to bring up. I wonder at Mrs. Alexander Spencer for doing it. But there, she wouldn't shrink from adopting a whole orphan asylum if she took it into her head. Mrs. Rachel would have liked to stay until Matthew came home with his imported orphan. But reflecting that, it would be good two hours at least before his arrival, she concluded to go up the road to Robert Bell's and tell the news. It would certainly make a sensation second to none, and Mrs. Rachel dearly loved to make a sensation. So she took herself away, somewhat to Marilla's relief, for the latter felt her doubts and fears reviving under the influence of Mrs. Rachel's pessimism. Well, Of all things that ever were or will be, ejaculated Mrs. Rachel when she was safely out in the lane. It does really seem as if I must be dreaming. Well, I'm sorry for that poor young one, and no mistake. Matthew and Marilla don't know anything about children, and they'll expect him to be wiser and steadier than his own grandfather. If so, be he's ever had a grandfather... "'which is doubtful. "'It seems uncanny to think of a child "'at Green Gables somehow. "'There's never been one there. "'For Matthew and Marilla were grown up "'when the new house was built. "'If there were children, "'which is hard to believe when one looks at them, "'I wouldn't be in that orphan's shoes for anything. "'My. "'But I pity him. "'That's what.' "'So said Mrs. Rachel.' To the wild rose bushes out of the fullness of her heart. But, if she could have seen the child who was waiting patiently at the bright river station at that very moment, her pity would have been still deeper and more profound. Chapter 2 Matthew Cuthbert is surprised Matthew Cuthbert and the sorrel mare jogged comfortably over eight miles to Bright River. It was a pretty road, running along between snug farmsteads, with now and again a bit of balsamy fir road to drive through, or a hollow where wild plums hung out their filmy bloom. The air was sweet, with the breath of many apple orchards, and the meadows sloped away in the distance of horizon mists of pearl and purple, While the little birds sang as if it were the one day of summer and all the year. Matthew enjoyed the drive after his own fashion, except during the moments when he met women and had to nod to them, for in Prince Edward Island you're supposed to nod to all and sundry you meet on the road, whether you know them or not. Matthew dreaded all women. Except Marilla and Mrs. Rachel, he had an uncomfortable feeling that the mysterious creatures were secretly laughing at him. He may have been quite right in thinking so, for he was an odd-looking personage, an ungainly figure, and long iron-gray hair that touched his stooping shoulders, and a full, soft brown beard which he had worn ever since he was twenty. In fact, he had looked at 20 very much as he looked at 60, lacking a little of the grayness. When he reached Bright River, there was no sign of any train. He thought he was too early, so he tied his horse in the yard of the small Bright River Hotel and went over to the station house. The long platform was almost deserted, the only living creature in sight being a girl who was sitting on a pile of shingles at the extreme end. Matthew, barely noting it was a girl, sidled past her as quickly as possible, without looking at her. Had he looked, he could hardly have failed to notice the tense rigidity and expectation of her attitude and expression. She was sitting there waiting for something, or somebody, and... Since sitting and waiting was the only thing to do just then, she sat and waited with all her might and main. Matthew encountered the station master locking up the ticket office preparatory to going home for supper and asked him if the 5.30 train would be along soon. The 5.30 train has been in and gone half an hour ago, answered that brisk official. But... There was a passenger drop-off for you, a little girl. She's sitting out there on the shingles. I asked her to go into the ladies' waiting room, but she informed me gravely that she preferred to stay outside. There was more scope for imagination, she said. She's a case, I should say. I'm not expecting a girl, said Matthew blankly. It's a boy I've come for. He should be here. Mrs. Alexander Spencer was to bring him over from Nova Scotia for me. The stationmaster whistled. Guess there's some mistake, he said. Mrs. Spencer came off the train with that girl and gave her into my charge. Said you and your sister were adopting her from an orphan asylum and that you would be along for her presently. That's all I know about it. And I haven't got any more offerings concealed hereabouts. I don't understand, said Matthew helplessly, wishing that Marilla was at hand to cope with the situation. Well, you better question the girl, said the stationmaster carelessly. I dare say she'll be able to explain. She's got a tongue of her own, that's certain. Maybe they were out of boys of the brand you wanted. He walked jauntily away, being hungry, and the unfortunate Matthew was left to do that which was harder for him than bearding a lion in its den, walk up to a girl, a strange girl, an orphan girl, and demand of her why she wasn't a boy. Matthew groaned in spirit as he turned about and shuffled gently down the platform toward her. She had been watching him ever since he had passed her and she had her eyes on him now. Matthew was not looking at her and would not have seen what she was really like if he had been. But an ordinary observer would have seen this. A child of about eleven garbed in a very short very tight very ugly dress of yellowish grey wincey. She wore a faded brown sailor hat And beneath the hat, extending down to her back, were two braids of very thick, decidedly red hair. Her face was small, white and thin, also much freckled. Her mouth was large, and so were her eyes, which looked green in some lights and moods of grey in others. So far, the ordinary observer, an extraordinary observer, might have seen that the chin was very pointed and pronounced, that the big eyes were full of spirit and vivacity, that the mouth was sweet-lipped and expressive, and that the forehead was broad and full. In short, our discerning extraordinary observer might have concluded that no commonplace soul inhabited the body of this stray woman-child of whom shy Matthew Cuthbert was so ludicrously afraid of. Matthew, however, was spared the ordeal of speaking first, for as soon as she concluded that he was coming to her, she stood up, grasping the one thin brown hand with a handle of shabby, old-fashioned carpet bag. The other she held out to him. "'I suppose you are Mr. Matthew Cuthbert of Green Gables,' she said in a peculiarly clear, sweet voice. I'm very glad to see you I was beginning to be afraid you weren't coming for me I was imagining all the things that might have happened to prevent you I had made up my mind that if you didn't come for me tonight I'd go down to track that big wild cherry tree at the end and climb up into it and stay all night I wouldn't have been a bit afraid It would be lovely to sleep in a wild cherry tree all white with bloom in the moonshine, don't you think? You could imagine you were dwelling in marble halls, couldn't you? And I was quite sure you would come for me in the morning, if you didn't tonight. Matthew had taken the scrawny little hand awkwardly in his. Then and there he decided what to do. He could not tell this child, with the glowing eyes, that there had been a mistake. He would take her home and let Marilla do that. She couldn't be left at Bright River anyhow, no matter what mistake was made. So all questions and explanations might as well be deferred until he was safely back at Green Gables. I'm sorry I was late, he said shyly. Come along. The horse is over in the yard. Give me your bag. Oh, I can carry it, the child responded cheerfully. It isn't heavy. I've got all my worldly goods in it, but it isn't heavy. And if it isn't carried in just a certain way, the handle pulls out. So I'd better keep it because I know the exact knack of it. It's an extremely old carpet bag. Oh, I'm very glad you've come. Even if it would have been nice to sleep in a wild cherry tree. We've got to drive a long piece, haven't we? Mrs. Spencer said it was eight miles. I'm glad. Because I love driving. Oh, it seems so wonderful that I'm going to live with you and belong to you. I've never belonged to anybody. Not really. But the asylum was the worst. I've only been in it for four months. But that was enough. I don't suppose you were ever an orphan in an asylum, so you can't possibly understand what it's like. It's worse than anything you could imagine. Mrs. Spencer said it was wicked of me to talk like that, but I didn't mean to be wicked. It's so easy to be wicked without knowing, isn't it? They were good, you know, the asylum people, but there is so little scope for the imagination in an asylum, only just in the other orphans. It was pretty interesting to imagine things about them, to imagine that perhaps the girl who sat next to you was really the daughter Of a belted Earl who had been stolen away from her parents in her infancy by a cruel nurse who died before she could confess. I used to lie awake at nights and imagine things like that because I didn't have time in the day. I guess that's why I'm so thin. I am dreadful thin, ain't I? There isn't a pick on my bones. I do love to imagine I'm nice and plump with dimples in my elbows. With this, Matthew's companion stopped talking, partly because she was out of breath and partly because they had reached the buggy. Not another word did she say until she had left the village and were driving down a steep little hill, the road part of which had been cut so deeply into the soft soil of the banks, fringed with blooming wild cherry trees and slim white birches were several feet above their heads. The child put out her hand and broke off a branch of wild plum that brushed against the side of the buggy. Isn't that beautiful? What did that tree, leaning out from the bank, all white and lacy, make you think of, she asked. Well, now, I don't know, said Matthew. Why, a bride, of course. A bride all in white, with a lovely misty veil. i never seen one but I can imagine what she would look like. I don't ever expect to be a bride myself. I am so homely, nobody will ever want to marry me, unless it might be a foreign missionary. I suppose a foreign missionary might not be very particular, but I do hope that someday I shall have a white dress. That is my highest ideal of earthly bliss. I just love pretty clothes, and I've never had a pretty dress in my life that I can remember. But of course, it's all the more to look forward to, isn't it? And then I can imagine that I'm dressed gorgeously. This morning when I left the asylum, I felt so ashamed because I had to wear this horrid old wincey dress. All the orphans had to wear them, you know. A merchant in last winter donated 300 yards of wincey to the asylum. Some people said it was because he couldn't sell it, but I'd rather believe that. It was out of the kindness of his heart, wouldn't you? When we got on the train, I felt as if everybody must be looking at me and pitying me. But I just went to work and imagined that I had on the most beautiful pale blue silk dress. Because when you are imagining, you might as well imagine something worthwhile. And a big hat all flowers and nodding plumes and a gold watch and kid gloves and boots. I felt cheered up right away, and I enjoyed my trip to the island with all my might. I wasn't a bit sick coming over in the boat. Neither was Mrs. Spencer, although she generally is. She said she hadn't had time to get sick, watching to see that I didn't fall overboard. She said she never saw the beat of me for prowling about. But if it kept her from being seasick, it's a mercy I did prowl, isn't it? I wanted to see everything that was to be seen on that boat, because I didn't know whether I'd ever have another opportunity. Oh, there are a lot more cherry trees all in bloom. This island is the bloomiest place. I just love it already, and I'm so glad I'm going to live here. I've always heard that Prince Edward Island was the prettiest place in the world, and I used to imagine I was living here, but I never really expected I would. It's delightful when your imaginations come true, isn't it? But those red roads are so funny. When we got into the train at Charlottetown and the red roads began to flash past, I asked Mrs. Spencer what made them red and she said she didn't know. And for pity's sake, not to ask her any more questions. She said I must have asked her a thousand already. Yeah, I suppose I had to. But how are you going to find out about things if you don't ask questions? and what does make roads red. Well, I don't know, said Matthew. Chapter One, An Irate Neighbor. A tall, slim girl Half past sixteen, with serious grey eyes and hair which her friends called auburn, had sat down on the broad red sandstone doorstep of a Prince Edward Island farmhouse one ripe afternoon in August, firmly resolved to construe so many lines of Virgil. But an August afternoon, with blue hazes scarfing the harvest slopes, little winds whispering elfishly in the poplars, against the dark coppice of young firs in a corner of the cherry orchard, was fitter for dreams than dead languages. The Virgil soon slipped unheeded to the ground, and Anne, her chin propped on her clasped hands, and her eyes on the splendid mass of fluffy clouds that were heaping up just over Mr. J.A. Harrison's house, like a great white mountain, was far away in a delicious world where a certain school was doing wonderful work, shaping the destinies of future statesmen and inspiring youthful minds and hearts with high and lofty ambitions. To be sure, if you came down to harsh facts, which it must be confessed and seldom did until she had to, it did not seem likely that there was much promising material for celebrities in Avonlea School. you can never tell what might happen if a teacher used her influence for good. Anne had certain rose-tinted ideals of what a teacher might accomplish if she only went the right way about it. And she was in the midst of a delightful scene, 40 years hence, with a famous personage just exactly what he was to be famous for was left in convenient haziness. But Anne thought it would be rather nice to have him a college president or a Canadian premier. Bowing low over her wrinkled hand and assuring her that it was she who had first kindled his ambition and that all his success in life was due to the lesson she had instilled so long ago in Avonlea School. This pleasant vision was shattered by a most unpleasant interruption. A demure little Jersey cow came scuttling down the lane, and five seconds later, Mr. Harrison arrived. If arrived, be not too mild a term to describe the manner of his interruption into the yard. He bounced over the fence without waiting to open the gate and angrily confronted, astonished Anne, who had risen to her feet and stood looking at him in some bewilderment. Mr. Harrison was their new right-hand neighbor, and she had never met him before, although she had seen him once or twice. In early April, before Anne had come home from Queens's, Mr. Robert Bell, whose farm adjoined the Cuthbert Place on the west, had sold out and moved to Charlottetown. His farm had been bought by a certain Mr. J.A. Harrison, whose name and the fact that he was a New Brunswick man were all that was known about him. But before he had been a month in Avonlea, he had won the reputation of being an odd person, a crank, Mrs. Rachel Lynn said. Mrs. Rachel was an outspoken lady, as those of you who may have already made her acquaintance will remember. Mr. Harrison was certainly different from other people, and that is the essential characteristic of a crank, as everybody knows. In the first place, he kept house for himself, and had publicly stated that he wanted no fools of women around his diggings. Feminine Avonlea took its revenge by the gruesome tales it related about his housekeeping and cooking. He had hired little John Henry Carter of White Sands, and John Henry started the stories. For one thing, there was never any stated time for meals in the Harrison establishment. Mr. Harrison got a bite when he fell hungry, and if John Henry were around at the time, he came in for a share. But if he were not, he had to wait until Mr. Harrison's next hungry spell. John Henry mournfully averred that he would have starved to death if it wasn't that he got home on Sundays. And got a good filling up and then his mother always gave him a basket of grub to take with him on Monday mornings as for washing dishes Mr. Harrison never made any pretense of doing it unless a rainy Sunday came then he went to work and washed them all at once in the rain and water hogshead and left them to drain dry again Mr. Harrison was close. When he asked to subscribe to the Reverend Mr. Allen's salary, he said he'd wait and see how many dollars worth of good he got out of his preaching first. He didn't believe in buying a pig and a poke. And when Mrs. Lynde went to ask for a contribution to missions, and incidentally, to see the inside of the house, He told her there were more heathens among the old woman gossips in Avonlea than anywhere else he knew of. And he'd cheerfully contribute to a mission for Christianizing them if she'd undertake it. Mrs. Rachel got herself away and said it was mercy poor Mrs. Robert Bell was safe in her grave. For it would have broken her heart to see the state of her house in which she used to take so much pride. Why, she scrubbed the kitchen floor every second day, Mrs. Lynn told Marilla Cuthbert indignantly. And if you could see it now, I had to hold up my skirts as I walked across it. Finally, Mr. Harrison kept a parrot called Ginger. Ginger. Nobody in Avonlea had ever kept a pair before. Consequently, that proceeding was considered barely respectable. And such a parrot, if you took John Henry Carter's word for it, never was such an unholy bird. It swore terribly. Mrs. Carter would have taken John Henry away at once, if she had been sure she could get another place for him. Besides, Ginger had bitten a piece right out of the back of John Henry's neck one day when he had stooped down too near the cage. Mrs. Carter showed everybody the mark when the luckless John Henry went home on Sundays. All these things flashed through Anne's mind as Mr. Harrison stood quite speechless with wrath, apparently, before her. In his most amiable mood, Mr. Harrison could not have been considered a handsome man. He was short and fat and bald, and now, with his round face purple with rage and his prominent blue eyes almost sticking out of his head, Anne thought he was really the ugliest person she had ever seen. All at once, Mr. Harrison found his voice. I'm not going to put up with this, he spluttered. Not a day longer, do you hear, miss? Bless my soul. This is the third time, miss. The third time. Patience has ceased to be a virtue, miss. I warned your aunt the last time not to let it occur again. And she's let it. She's done it. What does she mean by it? That is what I want to know. That is what I'm here about, miss. Will you explain what the trouble is? asked Anne in her most dignified manner. She had been practicing it considerably to lay the heaven good working order when the school began, but it had no apparent effect on the irate J.A. Harrison. Trouble, is it? Bless my soul. Trouble enough, I should think. The trouble is, miss, that I found that Jersey cow of your aunt's in my oats again, not half an hour ago. The third time, Mark you. I found her in last Tuesday, and I found her in yesterday. I came here and told your aunt not to let it occur again. She has let it occur again. Where is your aunt, miss? I just want to see her for a minute and give her a piece of my mind. A piece of J.A. Harrison's mind, miss. If you mean Miss Carilla Cuthbert, she is not my aunt. She has gone down to East Grafton to see a distant relative of hers who is very ill, said aunt, with due increase of dignity at every word. I'm very sorry that my cow should have broken into your oats. She is my cow, and not Miss Cuthbert's. Matthew gave her to me three years ago, when she was a little calf, and he bought her from Mr. Bell. Sorry, Miss. Sorry isn't going to help matters any. You'd better go and look at the havoc the animal has made in my oats, trampled them from center, to circumference, miss. I am very sorry, repeated Anne firmly. But perhaps if you kept your fences in better repair, Dolly might not have broken in. It is your part of the line fence that separates your oat field from our pasture, and I noticed the other day that it was not in very good condition. My fence is all right snapped Mr. Harrison, angrier than ever at this carrying of the war into the enemy's country. The jail fence couldn't keep a demon of a cow like that out. And I can tell you, you red-headed snippet, that if the cow is yours, as you say, you'd better be employed in watching her out of other people's grain than in sitting around reading yellow-covered novels with a scathing glance at the innocent tan-colored Virgil by Anne's feet. Something at the moment was red besides Anne's hair, which had always been a tender point with her. I'd rather have red hair than none at all, except a little fringe around my ears, she flashed. The shot told, for Mr. Harrison was really sensitive about his bald head. His anger choked him up again, and he could only glare speechlessly at Anne, who recovered her temper and followed up her advantage. I can make allowance for you, Mr. Harrison, because I have an imagination. I can easily imagine how very trying it must be to find a cow in your oats, and I shall not cherish any hard feelings against you for the things you've said. I promise you that Dolly shall never break into your oats again. I give you my word of honor on that point. Well, mind you, she doesn't, muttered Mr. Harrison in a somewhat subdued tone. But he stamped off angrily enough, and Anne heard him growling to himself until he was out of earshot. Grievously disturbed in mind, Anne marched across the yard and shut the naughty jersey up in the milking pen. She can't possibly get out of that unless she tears the fence down, she reflected. She looks pretty quiet now. I dare say she has sickened herself on those oats. I wish I had sold her to Mr. Shearer when he wanted her last week, but I thought it was just as well to wait until he had the auction of the stock and let them all go together. I believe it is true about Mr. Harrison being a crank. Certainly, there's nothing of the kindred spirit about him. Anne had always a weather eye upon for kindred spirits. Marilla Cuthbert was driving into the yard as Anne returned from the house and the latter flew to get tea ready. They discussed this matter at the tea table. I'll be glad when the auction is over, said Marilla. It is too much responsibility, having so much stock about the place, and nobody but that reliable Martin to look after them. He has never come back yet, and he promised that he would certainly be back last night, if I'd given the day off to go to his aunt's funeral. I don't know how many aunts he's got, I'm sure. That's the fourth that's died since he hired here a year ago. I'll be more than thankful when the crop is in and Mr. Barry takes over the farm. We'll have to keep Dolly shut up in the pen till Martin comes, or she must be put in the back pasture and the fence is there to be fixed. I declare, it is a world of trouble, as Rachel says. Here is poor Mary Keith dying, and what is to become of those two children of hers is more than I know. She has a brother in British Columbia, and she has written to him about them, but she hasn't heard from him yet. What are the children like? How old are they? Six past. They're twins. Oh, I've always been especially interested in twins, ever since Mrs. Hammond had so many, said Anne eagerly. Are they pretty? Goodness, you couldn't tell. They were too dirty. Davy had been out making mud pies and Dora went out to call him in. Davy pushed her head first into the biggest pie, and then, because she cried, he got into it himself, and wallowed in it to show her it was nothing to cry about. Mary said Dora was really a very good child, but that Davy was full of mischief. He has never had any bringing up, you might say. His father died when he was a baby, and Mary has been sick almost ever since. I'm always sorry for children that have no bringing up, said Anne soberly. You know I hadn't any till you took me in hand. I hope their uncle will look after them. Just what relation is Mrs. Keith to you? Mary. Mary. Not in the world. It was her husband. He was our third cousin. There's Mrs. Lynde coming through the yard. I thought she'd be up to hear about Mary. Don't tell her about Mr. Harrison and the cow, implored Anne. Marilla promised, but the promise was quite unnecessary, for Mrs. Lynde was no sooner fairly seated than she said, I saw Mr. Harrison chasing your jersey out of his oats today when I was coming home from Carmody. I thought he looked pretty mad. Did he make much of a rumpus? Anne and Marilla furtively exchanged amused smiles. Few things in Avonlea ever escaped, Mrs. Lynde. It was only that morning, Anne had said. If you went to your own room at midnight... Locked the door, pulled down the blind, and sneezed. Mrs. Lind would ask you the next day how your cold was. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.